0: Hello, welcome to the Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary and Podcast for May of 2023. This is Rich Branson. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is by Fleming and colleagues describing optimization of respiratory therapy resources by de-implementing low-value therapies. The authors identified aerosol therapy with hypertonic saline and mucomyth being ordered despite lack of evidence base for these therapies. Most of these were delivered on the floor to spontaneously breathing patients. They used the AERC clinical practice guideline on airway clearance to educate prescribers regarding the lack of efficacy using these agents. This resulted in a small reduction in an unnecessary therapy. Then they allowed the respiratory therapist to be empowered to not only contact prescribers that the therapy was unnecessary, but also to discontinue the therapy this resulted in a large decrease in unnecessary treatments, more than 90% of them, equivalent to saving four full-time equivalents of RT time, which can be used to do important therapy that impacts outcomes. Carl Hinkson, AARC president, provides an accompanying editorial reviewing the importance of evidence-based respiratory care against the backdrop of COVID-19, RT shortages, and burnout. Um, as the editor of the journal, I think again about how important clinical practice guidelines are to the AARC and the important hire of Linda Goodfellow to make this be a big success. Blanchett and others evaluated the accuracy and bias of four pulse oximeters in 193 ICU subjects. In 211 matched pulse oximetry and arterial oxygen saturation measures, these were simultaneous, they found that in the population of predominantly light-skinned subjects, oximeter performance varied widely between devices. One oximeter tended to overestimate SAO2 by about 1%, while the other three underestimated it by 3, 0.3, and 0.2%. SAO2 was underestimated with one oximeter in 91% of the cases, while it was overestimated in more than half with the other devices. They concluded that there was significant bias and moderate accuracy between SpO2 and SAO2. Managing editor Dean Hess provides commentary reviewing the determination of oximeter accuracy and the factors which alter it. He notes that the true accuracy of SpO2 is not as precise as most clinicians believe. These data are important, particularly related to the recent discussion of skin pigment and the impact on pulse oximeter accuracy, which is a little bit confusing for a number of us because Gibran and Tobin showed this in 1990. But we continue to look at pulse oximetry and have to decide, is it as accurate as we think? And blood gases may still be necessary to confirm the value of pulse oximetry in ventilated patients, especially of different skin pigments. Tavares et al. report bleeding and thrombotic complications of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation in 60 COVID-19 subjects compared with 67 subjects received ECMO for ARDS and hypoxemic respiratory failure without COVID-19. Thrombotic complications were similar between the groups. However, there were higher rates of severe bleeding, mostly in the form of airway bleeding and hemothorax in the COVID-19 subjects. COVID-19 patients with ARDS receiving ECMO also required longer durations of ECMO, 47 versus a mean of 19 days. They concluded that COVID-19 subjects require an ECMO for hypoxemic respiratory failure had severe bleeding complications and required prolonged support. This is another case as through the COVID-19 pandemic, many people reported important survivals related to ECMO, but there certainly are more complications than we probably have seen reported and need to look back at these things as we, as we move forward to what will probably be the next pandemic. Mammar and others performed a non-interventional cohort study using 930 subjects admitted over a 15-year period with ARDS and a PF ratio less than 150 millimeters of mercury. They examined the association between severe hypercapnia, so PCO2 greater than 50 TOR in the first five days and death in the ICU for patients receiving lung protective ventilation. They found severe hypercapnia in 59% of subjects on day one and a sustained relationship between hypercapnia and mortality up to day five. They suggest that severe hypercapnia was associated with mortality in ARDS subjects on lung protective ventilation. This to me is another way of looking at the relationship of VDVT to mortality in ARDS, which has been shown now for almost 20 years to be related. And I always find it ironic that we grade ARDS based on the PF ratio, but the outcomes are more related to gas exchange with CO2 probably reflects the structural damage to the lung over a period of time. Maya and others evaluated the association between ventilator parameters and mortality in children with respiratory failure on ECMO. The secondary analysis of an existing data set included 237 subjects, 64% of which were neonates. Overall, in-hospital mortality was 35%. They found higher PEEP on day one of ECMO was associated with lower odds of mortality. However, in the pediatric subgroup, no ventilator parameter were associated with poor outcomes. They concluded that PEEP is a modifiable parameter that may improve neonatal survival during ECMO. (coughs) Mueller et al. performed a small study of 10 subjects receiving non-invasive electromagnetic stimulation of the phrenic nerves. Half the subjects were awake volunteers and half were anesthetized patients. They found that the time to capture the phrenic nerves was less than one minute, and tidal volumes were in ca- increased without any skin irritation or pain. They suggest that non-invasive diaphragmatic stimulation is feasible in this select patient group. These early studies I believe are important for looking at some of the safety variables, but really doesn't show us that this, that this technique has any value. Sousa and colleagues evaluated an automatic resuscitator and a porcine model of ARDS. They found that this pneumatic device allowed adequate ventilation and oxygenation for up to four hours. They concluded that the device can be used in short-term attended ventilatory support settings until appropriate devices can be required. These are studies that are well done related to the use of this resuscitator, but it doesn't consider the fact that in a pandemic, if there aren't enough ventilators, using a device that has no alarms for disconnect or gas failure, really requires that somebody be at the bedside continuously monitoring the patient, something that we've learned isn't possible in a pandemic. Campos et al. performed a longitudinal study to examine the association between aerobic fitness assessed using ventilatory threshold variables measured during cardiopulmonary exercise testing and the risk of exacerbations in individuals with cystic fibrosis. They found that a lower oxygen consumption at the ventilatory threshold predicted exacerbations. They conclude that cardiopulmonary exercise testing variables at the ventilatory threshold might be able to be used to monitor patients at risk for exacerbation with cystic fibrosis. Guillo Moreno et al used a neonatal model of respiratory distress to evaluate the efficacy of two recruitment maneuvers, one applied for eight and a half seconds and the other for 17 seconds. Lung injury was created using a saline lavage model and recruitment maneuvers utilized a peak inspiratory pressure of 30 centimeters of water and PEEP of 15. They reported both techniques reversed alveolar collapse with few hemodynamic consequences. Um, the saline lavage model is often used and we often use it in our lab, um, but it does tend to be easily reversible with the judicious application of PEEP. Um, lung injury due to sepsis may respond differently. Coral Salami and others performed a cross-sectional study to test the construct validity of performance-based, disease-specific Vancouver Airways Health Literacy Tool for individuals with chronic airway disease. They evaluated 320 subjects, determining the impact of age and education on health literacy. They found that older age and less education were highly correlated with health literacy, emphasizing the importance of addressing these factors in any health literacy intervention. Lohberger and colleagues performed a retrospective study of quality improvement database, evaluating the duration of spontaneous breathing trials in pediatric subjects. They compared one hour and two hour spontaneous breathing trials using extubation failure and rescue non-invasive ventilation as endpoints. They found greater use of NIV rescue in the one hour SBT group with odds ratio of 3.94, so four times more likely to require NIV, but not with extubation failure. They conclude that a one-hour SPT may better balance extubation outcomes and length of invasive ventilation for a general pediatric ICU population. al performed a cross-sectional study using a questionnaire to collect sociodemographic information and assess susceptibility to e-cigarette use in subjects. This included exposures to e-cigarettes and advertising. They concluded that subjects without chronic lung disease were more susceptible to e-cigarette use than those with chronic lung disease who were currently undergoing medical treatment. Yang et al. compared two closed-loop techniques of ventilation in a lung model. Both algorithms were very similar except one technique included automated adjustment of the rise time and flow termination of spontaneous breaths. At an extreme setting of minute ventilation, 250% of the normal minute volume the technique with automated control of rise time and flow termination provided a lower tidal volume and faster respiratory rate. They suggest, suggest that this may have an impact in patients with severe obstructive disease. simazak and others contribute a short report on health care utilization in ARDS survivors two to three years after discharge. They report that outpatient and inpatient health utilization remained high for ARDS survivors even after 36 months reflecting a persistent high morbidity in this population. Additional research is needed to identify factors that support recovery of ARDS survivors. Guerrero et al. provide a short report on the use of the S3NIV questionnaire administered at hospitalization and at at discharge in subjects with acute respiratory failure. They found the questionnaire was reliable in assessing patient-important outcomes. Zaga and others provide a narrative review on techniques to evaluate speech in ventilated subjects with a tracheostomy. Uh, This paper is very interesting, particularly with the excellent figures that are included. Miller and colleagues contribute to a special article on burnout and well-being in the respiratory care profession. We've seen a lot of papers about burnout, many of them with with Andy Miller as a co-author. And I think it's well established after the pandemic and before the pandemic, staffing and leadership issues have led to burnout in the respiratory care profession and all exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the demands on RTs. We appreciate you subscribing and listening to the respiratory care editor's commentary and podcasts, and we look forward to speaking speaking with you again. To receive the content of this and past issues in the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.